I've mentioned a couple times in the series that Mr. Rogers' neighborhood debuted in February of 1968. But we haven't really taken any time to consider what that period of life was like, what the 60s were like. One thing I can tell you is that on February 19th, 1968, my mother had a five-week-old baby boy. Her firstborn and only son, probably the cutest kid born. <laughs> My mother would say, definitely the cutest kid born in 1968. Uh, so, but other than that incredibly important aspect of 1968, there was a lot that happened in the 60s. And maybe some of you were around. Maybe some of you have studied the 60s. Uh, here, here, to orient you to what the 60s were like, here's some context. In 1969, a new house cost $15,500. Give me four of them, right? <laughs> Man. A new car cost $3,270. The average income, this will kind of set the scale, right? The average income was $8,540. I just read that uh, some pipeline has been hacked and there's potential for gas shortages in the Atlanta area in the coming days. Don't rush out and buy gas. That's the other thing the the article said, which is exactly what we're all going to do. In the 1960s, in 1969, a gallon of gas was 35 cents. The Beatles released their first song in 1962. It was Love Me Do. And if you're singing that song, you're old. (laughs) You know what song that was. It was catchy, as most of the Beatles songs were. Spider-Man first appeared in a comic book in that same year, 1962. The Ford Mustang was introduced in 1964. That was a very good year. Astronauts landed on the moon in 1969. All of those things happened in one decade in the 60s. But if if you know much about the 60s, you know that the 60s were not only about Spider Man and Ford Mustangs. The 60s had some some really heavy aspects to it. Uh, some culture-changing, American-impacting events that happened. It was, a, it was a traumatic decade. It was a decade full of conflict. It was a decade of war and unrest and division. Uh, early part of the 60s, Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis, most notably Vietnam War is happening as we're moving through the 60s, which uh, on its own created unbelievable, maybe unforeseen up to that point, conflict in our country, division, sides, political sides, how are we supposed to handle foreign affairs, huge disagreements that often erupted into protests. Uh, Some of you, even now, just talking about, you have very strong opinions about that aspect of the 60s, carried over into the 70s. May of 1970 was the Kent State Massacre, right? National Guard opened fire on protesters at Kent State. This this is the context, this is the environment of what's happening in the 60s. President Kennedy's assassinated, 1963. 
Senator Robert Kennedy's assassinated 1968. As if that were not enough. Although Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954, it was the 60s, due to the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, when the civil rights movement began to accelerate. And so, 1964, we have the Civil Rights Act. In 1965, we have the Voting Rights Act. There's, mo- there's marches and protests. There's a march from Selma to Montgomery, Bloody Sunday, Edmund Pettus Bridge. All of this is happening in the 60s. This is the climate. This is the culture of the 60s. Dr. Dr. King gives his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, then tragically is assassinated April 1968, just a couple of months after Mr. Rogers debuted. There was a lot that happened in the 60s. There was a weight to the 60s. There was trauma in the 60s. It, It was almost as if, Ten lifetime of experiences and conflicts and disagreement were squeezed into one decade. And through all of those issues, people felt very strongly. People took very opposing sides. People argued for their perspective. People became entrenched with a viewpoint or a side, or an opinion, or a perspective. And, and, and with the passage of time, with the perspective of time, we now look back on some things that people felt very strongly about. And we know now, in 2021, we look back and know some people were very wrong in the 60s. Time has given us that perspective. To say there were some people who felt very strongly, got very angry on a side of an issue, and they were wrong. In the midst of this very tumultuous decade, a decade decade of anger and conflict and polarization and political sides and social sides, there was a man in a cardigan sweater who started showing up on TV teaching us how to be kind in the middle of all of that. There was a, a man in a cardigan sweater who showed up on a children's television show and Tried to bring out goodness. Tried to comfort. Tried to talk about being a better person. There was a a voice, at least one voice, that said, we can be better. Even in the midst of conflict and tension... We can be kind. In the middle of all of the racial tension of the 60s, Mr. Rogers invited a black man by the name of Francois Clemens to have a recurring role on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It was 1969 when, uh, or 68-69 when Francois Clemens joined the Mr. Rogers' neighborhood cast. Now, Clemens was uh, a professional opera singer, and if you've seen any of the old clips, he's often singing when he appears on the show. Mr. Rogers had heard him sing, loved his voice, got to know him, and invited him to be a recurring role on the show, which Mr. Clemens was intrigued by 
until he found out he was going to play the role of a police officer. During the 60s, Francois Clemens' experience with perspective on police officers was, was not completely positive. But Mr. Rogers was persistent. So he kept saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. And, he, and Francois Clemens fi finally gave in, had this recurring role for many years as Officer Clemens. As the racial tension mounted in our culture, <clears throat> even though desegregation was the law, there were still aspects of our culture that were very segregated. One of those was public pools. White people didn't want black people swimming in the same pools with them. This was a flashpoint, which set up, in 1969, one of the most memorable and one of the most culture-shifting moments in Mr. Rogers. Lest you think he was a passive observer of all of the conflict that was happening in the culture... He not only invited Mr. Clemens to be on the show, but there was this one particular episode where Mr. Rogers is in his front yard, his television front yard, with a kiddie pool. It's a hot day, and he's cooling his feet in the swimming pool, and Officer Clemens walks up, and Fred, Fred Rogers invites him to cool his feet in the same kiddie pool that Mr. Rogers was cooling his feet. And Officer Clemens says, I don't have a towel. And Mr. Rogers says, you can share mine. And they sat down together, and they put their feet in the kiddie pool, and a nation that was at war and conflict with each other saw a white man and a black man sit down together. They would reenact this scene in the early 90s when they were both older because it was such a powerful moment to remind a nation that though we have our differences, we are the same. We are human. We have a shared humanity with one another, no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from. We're the same. As we're exploring this idea of how to love your neighbor. Those were Jesus' words. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? We have to pause and consider how do we love a neighbor that's not like us? How do we love a neighbor that has a different background from us, different experiences from us, views life differently from us, perhaps has behaviors that are unlike ours? How do we love a neighbor that's not like us? Because we can't, we can't honor the words of Jesus. We certainly can't honor the life of Jesus if we only love neighbors who are like us. Jesus did not say, love your neighbor who looks like you as you love yourself. Love your neighbor who comes from the same part of the country as you do. As you love yourself. Love your neighbor who shares your political views as you love yourself. Jesus just said, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, whoever your neighbor is, whoever you meet, whoever you run into. Love that person as you love 
yourself. This was Jesus' way. Jesus moved toward people who weren't just like him. And if we're going to honor him, if we're going to we're going to claim to follow Him and serve Him. You and I have to move towards neighbors who aren't exactly like us. The Barner Research Group released a study uh, this past year in which they discovered that the majority of people in the 65% range, when asked about their friend group, the people that they build relationships with, most people would say, my friend group, my neighbor... The people that I am most around are people who are similar to me. And they give them categories like ethnicity and uh, income and political views and uh, life stage. 60 to 70% of people said, my friend group's people just like me. What was interesting about the study is that evangelicals specifically were more likely to have friends group of only people who are like them. When they accounted for evangelicals, Christian beliefs that we share, when they accounted for that group of people, the number went to 90%. Especially in the categories of beliefs, ethnicity, and political views. 90% of evangelicals said, my friend group, my neighbor group, are people that are like me. Which is interesting, because we follow a Savior who pursued people who weren't like Him at all. We, we follow a Savior who pursued people who were other than him. They weren't his same background, his same culture. They didn't share his beliefs. And our Savior had this consistent way of moving toward those people. The next time you read through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, notice how many times Jesus gets the side eye from somebody because he's talking to the wrong person. Happens all the time. Even those closest to him give Jesus the side eye. Like, why are you talking to that person? We don't talk to those people. And Jesus walks right through boundaries and barriers to connect with people who are not like him. Familiar story. Disciples are traveling through Samaria. Disciples go into town. Jesus hangs out at a well, has a conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman. His disciples come back. And can't figure out why in the world he's talking to this person. I mean, according, according to their background, according to their culture, no one should talk to a Samaritan, especially a Jewish person. They were culturally different. Uh, the Samaritans were a group of people who, when the northern kingdom of Israel was uh, attacked by the Assyrians and, and overtaken by the Assyrians. Some of the Jewish people were taken away into captivity, but some remained in the region. And then the Assyrians repopulated that region with more Assyrians. So Assyrians and Samaritans intermarried. They were Jewish people. They belonged to the northern kingdom, but they married Assyrians, and then they produced children that was Assyrian and Jewish, so a mixed race of people, the Jewish people 
shunned the Samaritans. Not only that, the Samaritans, I think the Jewish people would say, took great liberties with their religion. They didn't abandon the Jewish religion. They just kind of tweaked it some. Uh, They rejected the prophets. They only read the first five books of the Bible, but they kind of changed the stories so they became the center of the stories. Then they were fine with adopting some of the false gods and pagan practices of the Assyrians. that They had intermarried. So if you were a Jewish person, you had nothing to do with a Samaritan. They were a different race. They were a different culture. They had different beliefs. You didn't talk to them. And you didn't talk to a woman. A man man didn't talk to another woman. And you certainly didn't talk to a Samaritan woman. And you didn't talk to a woman who was at a well in the middle of the day because that meant she was trying to come when the other women weren't at the well, which means she probably had baggage. She probably had a story. She had probably had mistakes. So Jesus is having this conversation. His disciples go into town. And then this, what, this is what happens in John 4, 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked. Ask, what do you want or why are you talking with her? But they all thought it. They all thought, all gave him the side eye. Like, why are you talking to her? We don't talk to those kinds. And yet Jesus did. Jesus moved towards any neighbor. Often the people that the disciples wanted to push away were the people Jesus was trying to draw near. You notice that in the stories? Whenever there's a blind person, whenever there's a disabled person, the disciples are trying to push them away. Jesus is trying to get close to them. Children, you remember that story? Children are coming up to Jesus. Disciples are pushing them away. Jesus said, no, 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 let them come. Such is the kingdom of heaven. There's this theme with Jesus and the disciples. They're pushing people away. Jesus is drawing people close. They're figuring out reasons why we shouldn't be close to that person. Jesus has already decided he wants to know that person. One of the things about Jesus is Jesus wanted to be around the people that others didn't want to be around. Jesus wanted a relationship with the people that others didn't want a relationship with. With He sought out the ethnically different, the racially different, the religiously different. He sought out those who were pushed back. He sought out the disabled, the sick, the poor. He went towards people. And it didn't matter what kind of people it was. He moved towards them, whether they believed what he believed or not. Whether they came from the same background he had. Or not, whether they saw government and politics the same way he see he saw government and politics or not. Jesus moved towards people and he didn't put up boundaries. And this is one of the reasons the religious leaders criticized him so often. It's because of the people that he kept hanging out with. They would say things like, Why does your teacher eat with Tax collectors and sinners, which was the worst label they could come up with for a lot of cultural reasons. That was their way of saying, he hangs out with the worst people on earth. And the disciples are going, I don't know. But Jesus just kept hanging out with them. By the way, you can substitute 
whoever you think is the worst person in the world into that phrase as well. Right? Tax collectors and sinners just mean worst people in the world. Whoever that is for you, whatever the worst group is, the worst person is, the worst group of people are, whoever that is for you, Jesus would have had dinner with them too. The people you least want to be around are likely the people Jesus would have drawn close to. And we can turn it around. I mean, just, just kind of flesh out all of our prejudices. Jesus moved towards the Pharisees too. Now, the Pharisees become the bad guys in our stories. And, and, and they had some problems, right? They, they were some troublemakers. But sometimes we tell the story and we think of the Pharisees as the worst people on earth. The strange thing is Jesus had dinner with them too. Jesus, Jesus' ability to neighbor, Jesus' ability to love, Jesus' ability to connect and move towards people didn't go one way. It went both ways. Like even the Pharisees, Jesus would hang out with. If we aren't careful... In our reading of the scriptures, we will dislike the Pharisees so much that we'll forget that the Pharisee is our neighbor too. We'll dislike them. We'll come up with the boogeyman, right? We'll come up with the bad people. And we'll come up with all of the reasons why we don't like them and God doesn't like them and Jesus wouldn't like them. And we forget, no, he goes to dinner at their house too. And I don't know who you need to substitute for Pharisee, but... There's likely in some of our minds some group that is the worst group Jesus would never. And Jesus did. Like He moved both ways. He moved in all directions when it came to being a neighbor. Here's a scripture, Luke chapter 7. This is Jesus going to eat with one of the Pharisees. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Which is an interesting irony. It's an interesting irony that Jesus has come close to the Pharisees because he loves them and wants to rescue them and redeem them. And though that group who needs rescuing and redeeming doesn't think this other group is worth rescuing and redeeming. We all kind of stand in our corners and figure out Who's in and who's out and who deserves whatever. And Jesus moved in all of those directions. See, the irony of this story is there's one sinful, undeserving person, the Pharisee, who's complaining about another sinful, undeserving person. Which is who we are when we, when we complain about other people. That's who we are. When we decide that someone is too sinful or too godless or too wrong or on the wrong side of whatever, fill in the blank, 
When we become that person, we're an undeserving person pointing our finger at an undeserving person. Because none of us are deserving of the grace and love of Jesus in our lives. I was fascinated as I read that story this week, just about how it positions Jesus right in the middle. If you are determined to love your neighbor as you love yourself, regardless of who that neighbor is, or what that neighbor's like, or what their behavior is, or what their beliefs are, or what side of whatever issue they're on. If you are determined to love your neighbor as yourself in all directions, you will find yourself in the middle sometimes. You'll find yourself in the middle where this side is saying, well, I can't believe you love that for. I can't believe you're hanging out with that for. I can't believe you're talking to that. And then the people on this side will be saying the same thing about that side. And there is an inherent middle that comes with truly loving your neighbor. Giving value to all sides. Loving every person as someone created in the image of God. You will find yourself right in the middle, which is exactly where Jesus was. In the middle of loving in every direction. So then we may ask, well, where's the line? Like, don't, don't you have to have a line somewhere We're over which someone has crossed and, and we have to pull back from them? Well, Jesus tells us what that line is. He, he, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, beginning in verse, verse 43. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then he uses God as an example. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Like he, he blesses all people in all directions. And send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? What's really the sign that you are a follower of Jesus, that you've been changed by God, if you love according to the same scale as everybody else? Meaning, you just love people that are like you, or you love people that love you. Jesus said, this is the spectrum. You're, love your neighbor who loves you. Start there. But then the spectrum continues all the way over to love your enemy. So anything in between and including the people who love you and the people who hate you, you love all of them. Your neighbor to all of them. You're, you connect to all of them. He even says, what? What does it say about you? How, how does it demonstrate a changed life if you just love people that are like you? If you greet only your own people, if you connect with only the people who agree with you, that's not the gospel. That's not the power of Jesus. It doesn't take the power of Jesus to allow us to do that, to give us the ability to do that. It doesn't take the power of Jesus to give me the ability to love somebody who's just like me. I already like them. They agree with me on everything. 
takes the power of Jesus. It takes the gospel to compel me to love someone that I don't have a lot in common with. I don't see the world the same way. Our experiences are as dissimilar as they could possibly be. The Spirit of Jesus has to work in me to help me connect with that person, but that's exactly what I'm commanded to do. Scott Sauls is a pastor in Tennessee. He wrote, he wrote a book several years ago called Befriend. It's a collection of um, what he calls 20 essays of individuals who befriended someone completely unlike them. At the beginning of the book, as he's kind of setting up where we're going, he writes this. You will notice a common thread in each account of real friendship. Real friendship happens when we move toward the people we are most tempted to avoid. These are the people who are best equipped to challenge our perspective, push our buttons, and require us to put on love. We aren't always, all of us, good at moving towards people who aren't like us. It it feels unsafe sometimes. It, It feels unspiritual sometimes. It feels like we're violating our faith when in reality, we're confirming our faith when we do that. We're demonstrating our faith. We're demonstrating that we live and walk like Jesus because we're not just looking for people who look like us and agree with us and have the same background as us. We're just looking for neighbors wherever we find them and we're loving them. Especially in the day that we live in. Because we live in a day where people find their identity and their security in the group that they've joined. This is my group. We all think the same thing. We agree on the same thing. And and whatever the issue is, we decide where we stand and we all stay in line. And we all stay in our group. That's kind of the world we live in right now. We identify ourselves by our group and then we fall in line with our group. And Jesus just wouldn't stay in the group. Jesus would not be led by anything but love. Because love really was the boundary for Jesus. What's the boundary? For Jesus, it was love. Wherever I have to go to love, that's where I'm going. Whoever I can speak to in love, that's who I'm going to speak to. The 1960s were filled with this tension and division and conflict and us versus them and they're trying to destroy our world or our country or our wife, them and those and we can't allow. And that was, there was this voice. There was this voice that said, no, you can share the pool with me. I'll share my towel, towel with you. And we're the same. In 2021, 
There is tension and conflict and sides and finger pointing and groups and us versus them. And we need some people who will say, you can share the pool with me. We're the same. We're humans. The boundary is love. I've been called to love my neighbor as myself, all the way from the people who love me and agree with me to the people who hate me and, my, and are my enemy and everybody in between. I've been called to be their neighbor and to demonstrate love because, because here's, here's the catch. The catch is we were all outsiders spiritually at one time. Right, we were all other than. None of us belong to the race of God at one time. None of us belong to the family of God at one time. We were a people of disobedience. We were running away from God. And yet, God became our neighbor. And stepped into our lives with love and grace and gentleness and said, you can put your feet in the pool. You can use my towels. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll dry your feet. God brought us into his family when we were outside of it. We were unlike him. We were unlike his holiness. We were unlike his goodness. We were unlike him, and he came to us. So the question, if we're going to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, is who are we going to in order to be a neighbor? Where are we stepping across boundaries? Where are we breaking down walls? Where are we eliminating barriers so that we can demonstrate the love of Jesus to neighbors who are like us and especially to neighbors who are unlike us. That's what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. God, we live in a world not that dissimilar to the decade of the 60s. We have this strange notion, God, of good old days. A nostalgic notion that sometime in the past, everything was so great. One look at the 60s tells us that just never was. And yet there was a voice calling people to kindness and goodness and love. We need those voices today. In 2021, we need voices calling us to goodness and love. In 2021, we need voices not so much declaring our differences but declaring the love of Jesus for a lost world. We need friend groups 
that look like the friend group Jesus had when he was here. We need to love neighbors in the way that Jesus loved neighbors where the only boundary was love. How could he love? How could he love? Let us be the voice and the demonstration of the love of God in a world racked by tension and conflict and sighs. Help us to truly live out the words, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.